0: So as a society, we have a vague understanding, it's still kind of weak, I would say, that physical discomfort is required for physical thrival and mental discomfort is necessary for mental thrival. You don't just fall off your couch and become smart. You got to work at it. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Some types get a bad reputation due to the worst parts of them, especially in certain cultures. We have to look at the shadow side of ourselves, however, and realize how those actually become our strengths. But that takes finding courage to closely examine those shadows, deeply understand them in an intimate way, and then find out where you stand. Most of the problems we face in life, regardless of what our Enneagram type is, stem from not having the courage to bear emotional discomfort. I'm excited to announce my next course, begins March 31st, 2022, and it's called The Art of Asking Questions, Curiosity, Listening, and Intuition. I've been wanting to do this course for a while, and here's why. Curiosity is a superpower because it is upstream of all learning. When you're curious about something, you learn. When you're not, you don't. If you're curious about your own limits, they lessen. If you're curious about how you don't listen, you listen better. If you know how to ask good questions, your curiosity can express. It is hugely underestimated in our society how important curiosity is. Curiosity is a soul level attribute, therefore, its expression through questions is foundational to anything you want. Strength, intelligence, consciousness, resilience, confidence, focus, whatever. Because any quality you want calls you to ask powerful questions like, what's getting in the way of that? Why isn't it there yet? Do I really want it? Do I have the courage to pay the price, whatever it is? Is always a function of curiosity. Only curiosity will see you through to the root answer, the root cause. Most people have no idea they lack curiosity. It's a blind spot. And that makes it, without exaggeration, the root cause of their problems. This course will give you the tools to change that. The Art of Asking Questions begins March 31st, 2022. After that, it will be available as an online course. I'd love to have you join us live. For more info, go to clearandopen.com slash questions. Again, that's clearandopen.com slash questions. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. Touching on the, you know, that you you chose ahead of time and then chose a family that would reinforce whatever your number is. Do you believe that our souls or our spirits are, you know, reincarnating in each lifetime and each lifetime we're choosing a different number. So like over multiple lifetimes, we're experiencing all the different personalities. Uh, yeah. Be. Yeah. I wouldn't use the word believe that's my memory. Um, that's my recollection and, and that's my sense. Uh, I, I, I have very strong beliefs about beliefs. I don't. I don't <laughs> believe in them as best I can, and and I don't invite any of you to necessarily believe that. I would say uh, if you don't exp- if you don't have memories of being at the incarnational DMV, uh, it, it, which I've always wanted to make a, a skit about, uh, would, or at least a radio play, would be really fun. Uh, just try it on as an idea and see if it makes sense to you, but don't believe it because then it becomes. Uh, just a a mental idea. But yeah, that every Enneagram type sets you up to work different issues, just Mm -hmm. like being a man or a woman or growing up rich or poor or in the States or somewhere else. They're all different variables that can help us work different things. And so, yeah, we try them all. Perpetrator, victim, Israeli, Arab, German, Jew, we go back and forth. And um, sometimes even in the same lives. Not German and Jew in the same, well, you get what I mean. (laughs) But, you know, we've probably, you've all had the experience of doing something to someone else that someone did to you, you know, when you were younger and you go, oh crap, there it is. Now I'm on the other side. Mm -hmm. It just, it just happens so we can learn. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, Bill, you feeling better about being a six? Oh, <laughs> not, not, not totally. But yes, I'm, I'm getting there. Sixes of the fastest minds on the Enneagram. They're the most committed. They're the most hardworking. They're brilliant analysts. They're brilliant problem solvers. When they decide to make something happen, there's no stopping them. They're amazing beings. It's really difficult to be a six. Remember, sixes are one of the primary types, three, six, nine. So when you're in the center of the triad like that, you got big, you got an extra dose of issues. Speaking as a three, and I know what that's like. And um, sixes are, you know, the thing with sixes is, their thing is fear, you know, and we all have fear, but sixes have the biggest issues with fear And we're so confused about what to do with fear as a society that it's almost like you could say sixes are discriminated against in a way. Whereas like threes get rewarded, you know? And so the three who, uh, you know, defines themselves by their achievements and is always in action and performing and being what other people want them to be that's just as unhealthy as a, 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 as a six who is, uh, you know, negative or devil's advocating or, or um, you know, mistrustful or whatever. It's just as unhealthy, but it's not rewarded the same way. As Krishnamurti said, it's no, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a six society. So the fear that drives sixes so intensely And the uh, we've been calling it pessimism. Devil's advocacy, I think, is better. You know, the positivity, which is rewarded uh, in our society and seen as like better than negativity, uh, that is exhibited a lot by threes and sevens, who define our business culture. Threes and sevens are like the most positive types, I'd say. And so, when you have a bunch, when you have a culture dominated by threes and sevens. And then a six shows up and says, well, let me tell you how your plan isn't going to work. Well, what's going to happen then? You just rained on the parade of the three who defines themselves by the achievement and the seven who can't be in the present and is constantly imagining the next fun thing. And you're probably right that they should be thinking about that. But in that moment, they're going to hate you a little bit for bringing your fear into their, you know, harshing their mellow killing their buzz. And so sixes get a really bad reputation the same way eights get a really bad reputation because of their willfulness and their strength and, uh, and their conviction. Because there you go, conviction is also something that we're very screwed up uh, with as a society. So you could say in, in any culture, there's going to be certain Enneagram types that kind of get negativized because of the predominant themes of the culture. The same way, um, I think it was Terrence McKenna said, uh, yeah, Terrence McKenna said, in any culture, some drugs will be glorified and others will be vilified. And so you have in the United States, tobacco and alcohol, for the most part, alcohol is illegal for a while. But those two drugs are like, oh, and caffeine. Those drugs are good. I mean, nicotine has been changing, but uh, you know... Those are good things. And you go to another culture and it's like, well, here are these really powerful hallucinogens that are really good. And alcohol, that's terrible. And, and so it, you know, there's good things in everything. Alcohol can be incredibly useful, but of course, it kills lots of people when it's used uh, poorly. So sixes have it tough in the end. And so I invite you to, um, yeah, just notice where you felt misunderstood in some ways and, and see if you can embrace more of uh, what's great about being a six. Because there's lots of good things. So what about the shadow aspects of six? Now that I've built you up some and talked about all the great things about six, what are the shadow sides that you see, Bill? Uh, I mean, I can I can speak to uh, certain scenarios that I have in my head that uh, that made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, like I, I would approach a situation uh, courageously going in and saying y- you're wrong because of this. And then the person just breaks down and cries. And and then I uh, I lean I reach out for the hug and and, and sort of side with them. Uh, mm-hmm. it, But I walk away with it saying, why did I go that route? I was right going in there, but at that moment, I sided with them. So that's a negative shadow. I guess it depends on the situation. It sounds like a conflict between trusting your own truth and your care for the other person. Well, here's what I would say. I'd go one step back from that. It's an internal contradiction, right? Which is it? What do you actually think in that moment? Did did you sell out your truth and go with theirs, or which is it? And no, that's I just one of the- I cited for the moment to <laughs> to get away from the situation. Ah, to make yourself feel better because it got scary. So in a way, yeah. Yeah. So that would yeah. be something like to me as a six, like you don't feel like you feel safety when other people are happy. And so maybe that's what you're doing in that space is that right. you're trying to make the other person happy. And then that, at least at the moment made you feel good made you feel better. And that's why you did it. Even if that wasn't really what you went in going with. And then later on you go, Ugh, whatever. Yeah. That's my thought. Of. This is why I've been rewatching Seinfeld in its entirety. Which I occasionally do, uh, go back and watch old shows. And George Costanza is, I just, uh, I, he, he's such a great teacher about sixes because he's a caricatured version of six. And he gets himself in so much trouble. I mean, he literally lies to people just to get through, make himself happy, make other people happy. He distorts reality. In absurd ways, like his whole thing about he he you know, his employment situation, he's never honest to be he's an architect, he's a marine biologist, you know, all of that stuff. And it's it's easy to stand back and laugh at, but if you actually like sort of squint a little bit and be like, wow, this person is actually deeply troubled and really alone, but is trying to just keep everything up and avoid his own fear. And that's why the path for sixes is toward courage. That's, that, that's the key word for sixes. And every type has one of these. From fear to courage. from For threes, from deceit to vulnerability. from For sevens, from gluttony to sobriety. And that's the center of the, the theme. And that's what you want to really be immediate with every day of your life when you know what your type is to know what that movement is from what the core shadow is to the core gift or the core passion, whatever you want to call it. So in those moments, uh, so what I wanted to say uh, from before, the, one of the most challenging things about sixes is the internal contradictions. And the for sixes, one of the best ways to diagnose them uh, and spot them, and also to work with the shadow issues of a sixes, sixes tend to over-tolerate internal contradictions. So in those moments where it's like, okay, I think they're wrong, but they're getting really uncomfortable, and that's making me feel really uncomfortable, so I'll just take their side. All right, well, maybe that makes sense in the moment, but what about the next moment, and the next day, and the next week? A six will typically just leave it there, And living in that contradiction is a splitting of your very soul and that does pile up. And that's where you end up with the George Costanza type thing, where it actually happens to him in Seinfeld, where he's told different people different things. Or he, you know, that's that one where he tells the woman he's a marine biologist and suddenly they're on the beach and a whale is in trouble. (laughs) Somebody says, Is anyone a marine biologist? And he's like, Oh crap, like I've got to do something now. And he ends up removing a golf ball out of the blowhole. Remember that? And it's like, Okay, it happened to work out in that moment, but it's like the, I mean, we know this from those, uh, Remember the uh, Latter-day Saints commercials when, when I was a kid about when you tell a lie and they compound? It's a lot of work holding these, these contradictions. It's a ton of work and it weighs on you. And so, the, and, and, but what's the gift side of that? The gift side of that is that sixes are so mentally expansive and quick that they can take lots of different sides of things, which is exactly what an, anal- an analyst does. Or like think of like an insurance actuary writing the risk on a parade. Okay, this could happen and this could happen and this can happen. What if this happens? It's all these different angles and looking at them all at once. So that similar to nines, it gives you, but in a different way, it gives you the ability to see lots of different perspectives, which can be used as a truth in service of living in contradiction, which will make you very confused, which is what most sixes walk around being you're confused because you didn't find the courage in yourself to actually find where you stand and stand up to someone even if it made them uncomfortable see what i mean so that's a, a, a a rat's nest of stuff there's a lot of issues in there and it can be difficult to pull apart but it's all solved by the willingness to bear emotional discomfort, which is today's topic. And I better get to it because I'm running out of time. Does it feel like a resolved, a semi-resolved place for you, Bill, at the moment? Yes, I'm in a, I'm in a better place. <laughs> good. Thank <laughs> you for showing the courage. Thank you for, for being courageous and bringing the, the struggle and the sick stuff. And you give me a good entree into what I want to talk about today, which is courage. Because it's not just important for sixes. It's the most important for sixes, you could say, but it's it's important for everyone. And the you know, some of you have heard me talk about this before, this metaphor. We all know that if you want to become stronger physically, that there's going to be some pain involved in that, right? You want to be able to lift heavy weights over your head, or run a marathon, or whatever, physical strength, physical development requires enduring pain, doesn't it? In the, the 1980s taught us the phrase, no pain, no gain, and we will probably never forget it. And that's just how it is. And if you imagine someone who's never exercised and missed the 80s or whatever, and you got them in a gym and you said, okay, you know, pedal on this bike and they start pedaling and they're like, okay, yeah, this is fine. No, you got to pedal faster. We need some RPMs here. And then they start sweating, getting red and, you know, start feeling that pain in their chest, like it's hard to breathe. They might say, well, this is getting really uncomfortable. I want to stop. And you would say, no, 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 no. You got to do 20 more minutes. And they would say, well, okay. And then they would experience eventually after enduring that pain that they would get in better shape, wouldn't they? And we all went through this studying. Now, it sort of gets trickled into us. In elementary school, there's not much studying. It's not very mentally rigorous. But then around sixth, seventh, eighth grade, we start to actually have to use our minds in very intentional focused ways. You probably remember getting your first study headaches or brain drain and things start to get fuzzy and you can't take in any more information. And it's similar in energetic quality to the physical exhaustion. You could be mentally exhausted. But we learn that that's what it takes in order to get mentally stronger, right? And some people take that to, you know, uh, Jillian, for example, endured the trials and tribulations of med school, which I cannot even imagine. I didn't even get through the barest taste of organic chemistry. So that amount of memorization and the rigors of that, I mean, it's insane. We watch TV shows about it. It's about the closest most people can get to that level of rigor. And uh, it's really intense. And then you have the gifts of being able to help people in really significant ways because you earned that through the mental discomfort. But what about emotional discomfort? So as a society, we have a vague understanding. It's still kind of weak, I would say, that physical discomfort is required for physical thrival. And... Mental discomfort is necessary for mental thrival. You don't just fall off your couch and become smart. you got to work at it. But what about maturity? What about strength of character, strength of personality? Of course, it logically follows that it would follow the same rules, that there would, it would require some amount of pain to develop emotionally spiritually that's all actually a separate category spiritual but we can throw it in here for now but what we're peddled in our society is that emotional and spiritual growth development maturation can happen without discomfort now why on earth would we be sold that well the better question is why on earth would we buy that because no other form of growth happens that way you don't get stronger Drinking the 12-ounce curls, as they say, right? It doesn't work. And yet we still see people in the gym. I know anyone who's been to a gym, you see that one person who's pedaling like 20 RPM with like the big drink and they're watching TV and they're just literally going through the motions. And we all went to school with kids like that too. Just like their head's down. They're totally bored. They're not trying at all. They're annoyed when they get called on. Now, of course, as kids, maybe they don't want to get any better, but the the reason I would say, I mean, it's tied to so many different things, uh, especially the pursuit of happiness, because we have this existential notion that life is supposed to be comfortable and we're supposed to be happy all the time. That's what we're sold. You know, I want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Well, have you earned that happiness? Have you even considered what that means? Or do you just want to be happy without having to put any work into it? Because happiness is an emotion, isn't it? And what does it take to actually earn that? Well, maybe one of the things it takes is examining all the ways in excruciating detail in which you're unhappy. Wouldn't that make sense? But that's not pleasant to do, is it? I want to have all of my strengths without having to look at any of my weaknesses. Ooh, well, we have a problem because they're the same thing. <laughs> they're the same thing. You can't have one without the other. That's like, I want all up and no down. The only reason you have a concept of up is because there's a down. The only reason you have a sense of what's left is because there's a right and hot and cold and so on. So the... The prevailing sort of uh, and quite invisible aspect of the culture in which we live is that uh, there's sort of a surrender of like, okay, I guess I have to exercise to be physically fit, fine. But you know, look around, most people are quite divided about that idea, even when they intellectually know it. And if I want to get smart, I'm going to have to study and that's an effort. Okay, I understand that. But again, look around and see how many people... You know, pay tons of money to universities and then go there and slack off and don't actually do their best. I certainly was one of them in many ways. So we already have a lot of misgivings around putting in our best into anything. But in the domain of uh, emotion and spirituality, it's not even there. It's not even at that low level. It's at the level of, um, I don't want to have to feel bad ever past the potato chips, past the remote control. I want to feel great right now, which is uh, in part driven by the uh, the business leaders and business culture in our country, uh, which is mostly driven by sevens. Because sevens have instant gratification issues more than any other type, but everybody has them. Because that's the medicative culture in which we live. So uh, and then you know therapy came on the scene and you know the turn of the century I can't, you can't say turn of the century anymore the turn of the last century around uh, 1900 was when uh, Freud published the interpretation of dreams which is often looked at as the, the birth of uh, the beginnings of modern psychology and then therapy was created first of psychoanalysis. And then when the limits of therapy, which, and what is therapy? Feeling the negative, so called feelings, the difficult to feel feelings so that they can breathe and be felt and move and heal. But when the limits of therapy started to become encountered and there was a lot of impatience around that, what was the solution? Drugs. The technology showed up to have uh, synthetic happy pills so that, uh, um, you know, which I've said, and I'll say again, save lives and are critically important for many people to get to a stable place. I'm not running them down at all. But when, uh, when someone, uh, when a loved one dies, for example, and the, the, a doctor gives someone an antidepressant to deal with the grief, and then that person stays on that antidepressant for years and years and the rest of their life, there's something deeply wrong here. Because death is a part of life. It's not the opposite. You see, it's the same thing. Death is a part of life. So if you need a pill to be able to handle that death as painful as it can be, then you're emotionally weak. You see? You're emotionally weak. And that's okay. But do something about it to get stronger. You know, the same way I'd say, if you don't have the physical strength to jack your car up, if you get a, f- a flat tire, I would say you're physically weak and call AAA. That's fine. But then go to the gym because that's a really minimal, basic amount of strength that I think anybody should have. That doesn't, you know, or how about lifting your own kid up onto your shoulders or uh, uh, vacuuming your own house or whatever it is? It's like life requires strength physically uh, mentally and emotionally too but we're not taught even what that emotional strength is what what is that how do we define that what are the what what makes an emotionally strong person different from an emotionally weak person physically that's not hard to describe we could say well you know it sort of depends on your standards but like uh you know In the venue, but like, you know, in weightlifting communities, being able to bench press your own weight is sort of a basic objective criteria for strength in that world. We don't have anything like that at all for emotions, at all. And that's how we end up with presidents like Trump who just splurt out emotional dystrophy and congestion, vitriol and aggression on like a day, literally a daily basis. And then when it comes time, the opportunity to impeach him, it's like, no, nah. we'll do it again later. You see, the, the, only, the only thing you have to uh, have to become president is you have to be 35 years old and be an American citizen. Those are your criteria, right? How about like not being a sociopath or even submitting your tax returns for review? That's not a criteria. It's become a sort of custom, but he didn't do it. So, as a society, we're really weak on criteria of all kinds. There are places where it exists. You want to get into the uh, special forces or something, you will run into all sorts of criteria. If you want to get into the FBI, you got to be able to run tw- uh, two miles in under 12 minutes. I always thought that was really cool. That's not easy, you know? But if you want to become president, you don't have to be able to do a single push up. <laughs> <laughs> Or be able to navigate conflict in a way without uh, personally insulting the person. Or be able to keep state secrets, apparently. (laughs) You see? And if you question someone's integrity or their morals in our society these days, you get serious defensiveness coming at you most of the time, don't you? Well, again, it's because there's no agreed upon criteria. One day, maybe we'll get there. I don't know. But the problem with criteria like that, objective in quotes criteria, is it immediately invokes the issue of accountability. Well, who's to say and who are you to tell me such and such? Because accountability makes us emotionally uncomfortable, doesn't it? Doesn't it make us so emotionally uncomfortable? Remember the first time or maybe just the last time someone said, your name, can I see you in my office? You're just terrified, right? Instant terror. That's the first thing that comes up in us. It goes all the way back to, hey, you better sit up straight and be quiet or else I'll send you to the principal's office. Remember that? Long before you even met the principal or knew who the principal was, or you know, you saw him maybe or her at a distance, but you didn't know what went on in the principal's office. But you were afraid of it before you ever went. And maybe some of you never went so it was just in your imagination about what happened. Oh no, the principal's office. Because that person's not here to support me in my development. That's not the case. That's not how authority figures are presented to us. Authority figures are enormous pains in our asses who torture us and get us in trouble and make us emotionally uncomfortable in ways that Don't benefit us at all. So these are just a few of the ways in which we're conditioned that emotional discomfort is bad. But it goes all the way back to early childhood. It's as simple as uh, you know, when uh, you see this all the time around babies and uh, parents and their babies, the parents want to connect with their babies, understandably. And uh, babies, Get very easily overwhelmed, but you have to be sensitive in the right ways to be able to actually track that. So, what you'll see if you're next time you're around uh, parents and their babies, check this out. The parent will like try to make eye contact with the baby, and the baby will do that for a little while and then look away. And they're looking away because they've had enough. The baby has no walls, and they just take it all in like a fire hose. And when they've had enough, they look away and watch to see the parent will move their head to try to regain eye contact and reconnect. That's injurious to that infant. That's overwhelming. It's, it's a lack of respect of the boundaries of that infant. The only thing the infant who can't even pick their head up can do is look away. That's all they can do. But the parent, because of their own need to be connected up, makes the kid connect. And that's one of the beginnings of emotional discomfort is a bad thing. You see, it's, oh, this is too much. I can't take this. I got to look away. And then it keeps coming at me anyway. And the child feels bad because that doesn't feel good. But there's no ego there for the child to say, oh, well, my parent, uh, because of their parenting, uh, you know, is um Uh, Has an overriding need to be connecting up, connected up because of their own loneliness issues, and so they're just trying to use me as like a teddy bear to connect with. And that's nothing about me. That's not me. That's 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 their stuff. Baby can't do that. They feel bad, and then they immediately go to I am bad. They experience badness and them all at once. That's the birth of. Go all the way, all the way, all the way back to why we're averse to emotional discomfort. That's where it comes from. That's the seed. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the Clear and Open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do.